This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. In honor of the 4th of July, we're bringing you something special from Cafe. You can now purchase a signed copy of my book, Doing Justice, at shop.cafe.com. And when you buy a signed copy of my book, you'll receive a Cafe Insider membership for two months free. Cafe Insider helps you make sense of news at the intersection of law, politics, and justice. Insiders get an exclusive weekly podcast, a newsletter, conference calls, and more. If you're already an insider, you can get a signed copy of Doing Justice, and you'll still get two free months. So head to shop.cafe.com. That's shop.cafe.com. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Pretty quickly, I started to understand that if I was going to talk about my own personal connection to the Constitution, I would have to talk about my own body and the Constitution. Supreme Court decisions that affected me most extremely had to do with, of course, birth control, had to do with abortion. And then in looking at Supreme Court decisions over the years having to do with women's bodies, I realized how much violence toward women was not only not addressed by our Constitution, but also sort of enshrined in it. That's Heidi Schreck. She's the star of the Broadway play, What the Constitution Means to Me. It's part memoir, part history lesson, and even part public debate. I saw the show on its opening night and found it so moving, I decided I had to get Heidi on the podcast. We discussed the inspiration for her unlikely play about the Constitution, how the personal can be universal, and how the debate keeps shifting on whether to keep or rewrite our founding document. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Pod Save America co-host Tommy Vitor thought foreign policy was boring until he got the education of a lifetime working for President Obama's National Security Council. His weekly podcast, Pod Save the World, brings you behind the scenes. Hear about White House Situation Room meetings with people who were there. Every week, he's joined by former Deputy National Security Advisor and resident analyst Ben Rhodes, who was my guest on Stay Tuned a few weeks ago to talk about Iran. New episodes of Pod Save the World drop every Wednesday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks. Welcome to a special 4th of July edition of Stay Tuned. The interview today is, I think, a special one. For a lot of people in America, the 4th of July is about fireworks and about barbecues and about getting together with your family, uh, maybe going to a ball game. And that's all great and that's all good. And and I do that every 4th of July also. But it's not a bad time to think about that document that is at the foundation of ordered society in the United States of America, that document being the Constitution. And not to talk about it in a way that's dry and academic and boring, but the way that Heidi Schreck brings the Constitution to life in her play that you'll hear about. And what was startling to me when I saw what the Constitution means to me, and also as I spoke to Heidi Schreck, was this notion that the Constitution is not only a living document, but it's a document that contains principles that matter to our daily lives, how we treat our bodies, how we treat other people, uh, how we get along in society, what's fair, what's just, what's unfair, what's unjust. So as you listen to the conversation between me and Heidi. Think about the ways that the Constitution affects you. Think about the ways maybe the Constitution could be made better. Think about reading it again. It's a bit shorter than the Mueller report, that's for sure. And think, when you're watching the debates among the 30 or 40,000 Democrats running for the nomination, whether you think their vision of what America should be like under the Constitution fits with yours. For this episode, rather than focus on the news that's going on, and there's plenty of it, I thought we'd just sort of spend this period of time talking about 
the Constitution, talking about patriotism, talking about what this country is about. One question I got in the last few days comes from a listener, Francis Yancey, who says, Preet, I am curious if your parents are disappointed in the country to which they immigrated. I am. I moved to a democracy 20 years ago. It isn't one now. And then it goes on to talk about the problems that this listener sees in America. And I hear that and I get all that. But to answer very forthrightly your question about whether or not my parents are disappointed, they are not. They are disappointed in some of the leaders that have been elected in America. They're disappointed in some of the policies, especially with respect to immigration, because we were welcomed with open arms to this country. My brother and I had an opportunity to make something of ourselves in this country, and nothing will take that away. And so when we get together as a family, we still talk about how wonderful a country this is. Uh, I told my kids once that even with Donald Trump as president, America is still the greatest country in the world. It needs some work. We need to do some stuff to make it better. But it is still the case that there is more freedom, there's more opportunity, there's more mobility, there's more idealism here than any place I've ever been. And we have no intention of moving. You know, it's a common joke, maybe some people mean it seriously, that if Trump gets elected or so-and-so gets elected, they're going to move to Canada or they're going to move to Scandinavia or someplace else. And I know it's meant mostly in jest, so I don't want to take it too seriously, but I think that's the wrong way to think about it. At precisely the moment that you think the ideals you care about in the country are under attack or being undermined, that is not the moment to flee. That's the moment to stay. That's the moment to fight. That's the moment to vote. That's the moment to make your own voice heard. So America returns to what you think it's supposed to be. Now, I asked last week for folks to send their views of what they think patriotism is. Lots of people have lots of definitions, and I think people can be patriotic in their own individual ways. Here are some examples from leaders of the country, both fictional and non-fictional, and what they think about patriotism. Take a listen to Barack Obama's campaign speech from Independence, Missouri, 2008, documentarian Ken Burns, fictional president Bill Pullman's speech from the movie Independence Day, actor Michael Douglas's speech from the American president, Trump at the UN in September 2018, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt's radio address after Pearl Harbor, and President Ronald Reagan in January 1989. When we celebrate the birth of our nation, I think it's fitting to pause for a moment and reflect on the meaning of patriotism. What matters are the ideas, not the false patriotism. The only desecration is by the people who manipulate the Constitution. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. You gather a group of middle-aged, middle-class, middle-income voters who remember with longing an easier time, and you talk to them about family and American values and character. As my administration has demonstrated, America will always act in our national interests. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Precisely because our ideals constantly demand more from us, patriotism can never be defined as loyalty to any particular leader or government or policy. We know what we have to face, and we know that we are ready to face it. An informed patriotism is what we want. And are we doing a good enough job teaching our children what America is and what she represents in the long history of the world? We are the free and unconquerable people of the United States of America. There will be high moments in which your strength and your ability will be tested. I have faith in you. I feel as though I was standing upon a rock. That rock is my faith in my fellow citizens. We may hope that our leaders and our government stand up for our ideals, stand up for what's right. And there are many times in our history when that's occurred. But when our laws, when our leaders or our government are out of alignment with those ideals, then the dissent of ordinary Americans may prove to be one of the truest expressions of patriotism. Coming up after the interview, we'll play clips from some of your responses to the question, what does patriotism mean to you? And I'll give you my thoughts too. 
My guest this week is Heidi Schreck. After years of off-Broadway and television writing success, she's now a two-time Tony nominee and Pulitzer Prize finalist for her Broadway show, What the Constitution Means to Me. If you haven't seen it yet, go. You'll join the likes of Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, but we'll get to that. Heidi talks to me about growing up an outgoing nerd, how her family history is tied to the Constitution, and what it means to be patriotic. That's coming up. Stay tuned. There are some things in life to take seriously, like feeling safe in your own home. But only one in five homes have home security. It can be hard to find the right fit and the right price, maybe because most companies don't make it easy. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24-7 monitoring for just a fraction of the cost. And they make it easy on you. No contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. Plus, it's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. No wonder it's won a ton of awards from the likes of CNET and the New York Times Wirecutter. Visit simplysafe.com slash Preet, and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial, so you've got nothing to lose. So now go to simplysafe.com slash Preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash Preet. This episode is brought to you by the Showtime limited event series, The Loudest Voice, starring Russell Crowe as Roger Ailes, the pivotal architect of Fox News. The Loudest Voice tells the inside story of the success and secrets of the man who built a conservative news empire from the ground up, gaining power and influence that reached all the way to the White House. A media mastermind who left behind a powerful legacy, Ailes resigned in disgrace after accusations surfaced of years of sexual harassment and abuse. The Loudest Voice features an acclaimed cast, including Sienna Miller, Seth MacFarlane, and Naomi Watts. In this show, you feel like a fly on the wall, witnessing how Roger Ailes positioned Fox News as one of the most powerful networks today. Plus, Russell Crowe's transformation into Roger Ailes is more than just good makeup and a fat suit. But you can see that for yourself. The Loudest Voice is now streaming, only on Showtime. Go to Showtime.com and start your free trial now. Heidi Schreck, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, speaking of shows, you have one called What the Constitution Means to Me. And at the risk of pandering right off the bat with my guest, uh, I went and saw the show. And it's, it's amazing. It's a real pleasure and treasure. I rhymed that myself. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's a treat to have you on. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. So you've done a million things, including writing and now performing. You got your start, I noted with great pride, in high school, doing speeches, yes. and one of the origins of the of the production you're doing is based on a speech you gave in high school, but you did all that under the auspices of the NFL. Indeed. I was a, an active member of the NFL all four years of high school. So people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you, don't, you don't look like you played football. No, the NFL also stands for? National Forensics League. So you did autopsies? I did, yeah, I know. Everyone, that's the, <laughs> you're right. That is the next question everyone asks. It's the National yeah. Forensics League. What kind of weird right. people were you <laughs> doing cadaver work in, in high, high school. school. <laughs> so the National Forensic League, in which my son now is a participant, is actually what? It is speech and debate. So it's, speech and debate. Uh, yeah, I, I participated in many events. I did oratory one year. I did uh, extemp, which was my favorite. Extemporaneous speaking. Extemporaneous That's speaking. That's what my son does. Yes, right. I know. That's so exciting. Uh, I did dramatic interp, DI, we called it, where I, I gave a very moving speech from Anne of the Thousand Days, begging my husband, the king, not to kill me. And I also did impromptu speaking, which is like three to five minutes. Um, this is like impromptu right here. It is impromptu, yes. <laughs> I loved impromptu. Actually, it was one of my favorites. You would get like a an issue of the day. You would have 10 minutes to go into a room by yourself with a lot of like magazines and books, and then you'd have to construct a three to five minute speech and come back out and deliver it. There's like this adult club, and I run into people, journalists or they're lawyers or whatever, and somehow it will come out that we did speech and it's not something we put on our resumes Yes, as, as adults, although you kind of do. I do, yeah. I mean, you do it in a big way. I mean, so tell us a little bit for folks who don't know and sure. haven't seen the show yet, which, by the way, I will tell folks before they get irritated hearing about this wonderful show, thinking it's only playing on Broadway in the great New York City. 
you have plans to bring it everywhere. We do. Well, we're actually going to D.C. in the fall, in September, and to Los Angeles the following January. And then we have a plan in motion to take it all over the country, which I'm incredibly excited about. No, and, and, and people should go see the show. So what the Constitution means to me, it's a, basically a cabaret musical? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> As you- what, you can tell from this? the title. What is the show? The show is quite hard to describe. So I like to describe it this way. The show is based on a contest I did as a teenage girl where I would travel the country giving speeches about the Constitution at American Legion Halls for scholarship money. So my mom was a high school debate coach. And she found this contest. She'd had many students succeed at this contest. And she basically came to me when I was 14, actually, and said, you will be doing this contest because we're high school teachers and we need money for college. And I said, okay. And then I loved it. I really fell in love with learning about the Constitution. Also, there's an extemporaneous part of the contest where you draw an amendment or article from a hat and then you have to speak about it extemporaneously. <laughs> this is very much like football. A, it's totally like football. <laughs> it's like, it's like an NFL makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. The adrenaline, the, the adrenaline I imagine is the same. But yeah, every year they would pick three articles, three amendments. So you knew going into that year that you had to really learn about those six things and then you you had to be ready to speak about them. And I loved that part. I don't know why. I really liked the feeling of improvising on stage. So my show has a little bit of a sense of that. I developed it improvisationally. I recreate the contest, go back to inhabit my 15-year-old self. How painful is that? That's really painful, actually. Every time I do it, I remember all the things like my braces. <laughs> I had braces and like a permanent and like a really bad chin acne and all of that. Whenever I step back into the 15-year-old, like the feeling of that really comes back to me quite viscerally. But anyway, in order to win the contest, the prompt was you had to like draw a personal connection between your own life and the Constitution, which is is difficult for most of us to do, but particularly at 15. So I did it in quite a general, rah-rah, American kind of way at 15. And then I thought about 10 years ago, it would be, you know, I'm a playwright and an actor, and I thought it would be interesting to go back and take that prompt as seriously as I could. Like, really actually examine how my life might have been shaped by this document and the lives of the people in my family. And in doing that research and that work, I I began to center on how profoundly it had affected the lives of the women in my family. We were discussing this before <laughs> you came on. Yeah. You coined a great phrase that I wish I had known some time ago. In high school, you said you were an outgoing nerd. Yes. So is that an oxymoron or not? I don't think it is. I think there are there are introverted nerds, people who like right. to, you know, be alone with their minds and don't like to interact socially. I was not one of those people. I was super into school. I was really into history. I read books all the time and I gravitated toward other nerds, but I really was also very social. So I'm trying to think about a show I might do off Broadway somewhere. Maybe <laughs> it'll go to Broadway. And I wonder if this is obviously very different things. And I mean the compliment by the comparison. When Lin-Manuel Miranda is like, I'm going to do like a rap show yes. about Hamilton, assuming that people who were going to fund this thing were like, you're nuts. <laughs> what was it like when you started telling people you're going to do a show called What the Constitution Means to Me and have it be not just educational, but entertainment and good, fun, solid, thought-provoking entertainment? Well, so luckily I've worked in New York theater for about 20 years and i I started in downtown theater, mostly downtown experimental theater. So I have a lot of deep relationships there. So I was able to go to this incredible theater called Club Thumb and say, hey, I have this very strange thing I'm working on. I'm going to revisit this contest I did. It's going to be about the Constitution. It's going to be about my life, the lives of four generations of women in my family. It's going to be about constitutional law and American history, but I don't know what it looks like. But it's also going to be funny, and I think it's going to end with a live debate about whether to abolish the Constitution. <laughs> and then you can and, also take the AP exam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and right after that, you just go straight to the advanced placement test. But luckily for me, the artistic director of that company, Maria Stryer, I've worked with her for years. She knows my other plays. She knows my work and really was like, hey, I trust you. Like, I, even if you don't know what you're doing yet, I trust you to make a piece of theater that's exciting and strange and interesting. So 
She gave me carte blanche. Now, granted, it was, you know, it was a 10-day run in a 70-seat house. The risk was low. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, yeah. I heard about your show. Oh, you did? A long, long time ago, before you opened on, on Broadway. Yeah. You know, I don't go until it's on Broadway. That's Of course. That's yeah. how yeah. I you roll. You and RBG like, I, I, like to wait. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it was recommended to me by multiple people who saw it and said, in, not just that they thought it was great, but they thought that I, in particular, would like it, given you yes. know, my background and what I talk about. Uh, so I've been dying to see it for a long time. So you so you mentioned you did a little name dropping there. I did. I know. I was going to get to it. It's like Heidi's worried. Pre- I know, but I'm Pre- so excited. Mention, it just happened. It's great that you're talking about how wonderful the show is, but you know, you're just pre and you're wondering, is he going to ask me about the time that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg came to the show? Yes, I was going to ask, but, but thanks for jumping the gun on that. No problem. So what was that like? We can talk about it later. Oh my God. Well, first of all, I will say that the best part was, is we, you know, it was my dream that she'd come obviously, and we've been inviting her and inviting her. And I think we had heard secondhand that she wanted to wait to see how the reviews were, <laughs> which is totally fair. She's very busy, and I don't want her to travel. Um, you know. And, and um, did you make sure that she was very safe when she was in the audience? Oh, we did. Yeah, she was incredibly safe. I mean, she and her people made sure she was safe. We all, our entire cast was overwhelmed. I actually, at the very end of the show, you know, there's a a piece I won't give away, but she is. Uh, she is referenced in some way. And I always turn my back to the audience at that point. Anyway, it's part of my blocking, but I actually just began to sob when my back was to the audience and had to recover very quickly. And our 18-year-old our debater was on that night, Thursday Williams, and she she is just, I mean, she carries an RBG pencil out when she debates. Her whole <laughs> dressing room is decorated with, like, paraphernalia. I, I've, got an, yeah. I've got an RBG pull-up bar. That's <laughs> what do. I, yeah. That's great. No, oh, not yeah, really. they also do the RBG workout. <laughs> the young women do the RBG workout really, backstage. Yeah, yeah. so it was, uh, no, it was profoundly moving to did, have did her Did RBG um, shut off her cell phone? I, <laughs> as far as I know. At any point, did she open hard candy during the, <laughs> during the show? No. <laughs> Did she come back afterwards? And she did. What, what did you guys talk about? She invited us to the court, which was exciting. And then she told Thursday Williams, our debater, that she couldn't wait to see her on the court one day. Thursday, that is one of Thursday's dreams, and I think it will happen. Um, she signed our wall. We have a little wall to a Supreme show, which was a very cute pun. And then we talked actually about... <laughs> Thurgood Marshall's view of the Constitution for a little while because we debated so the end of abolish. It was light stuff, yeah. <laughs> the idea of like being able to love what the Constitution has become and what it's capable of becoming, even if you criticize and in some cases hate its beginnings, which I thought was very moving. You know, you mentioned reviews and maybe RBG was waiting for a review. Can I, can I read a portion of one? You're not going to dislike. You're not going to dislike this. <laughs> Just, is it one of the bad ones? <laughs> no, no. That's why I said you're not. You will okay. not dislike this. Okay. This is from the New York Times. One of the New York Times reviews, and I thought this was a very interesting way of putting it, so people understand something about your show because the, the title doesn't quite convey it. And they wrote, "It is a tragedy told as a comedy, a work of inspired protest, a slyly crafted piece of persuasion." and a tangible contribution to the change it seeks. It is not just the best play to open on Broadway so far this season, but also the most important. Do you read your reviews? Um, I have I my you? husband read parts <laughs> of them to me. So that's I ever summarize them. Do you agree, and put modesty aside, do you agree it's, it's important? And if so, why? Um, it certainly has been important to me. I learned so well, much I hope so. making it. Well, yes. In addition to the way it's, you know, sort of transformed my life, I will say I learned so much over the past 10 years making it. I learned a lot about our country, a lot about myself, and it really transformed my relationship with my mother. So as you know from the play, I have a history of domestic violence in my family and of sexual abuse, and this was something... Uh, my mom is the one who experienced it firsthand, something she carried with her her whole life, and you know, at at times made our relationship difficult in part because she was just carrying so much grief and these things are hard to talk about. And I really enlisted my mom while making the piece to help me and also to let her know what I wanted to share and have her share her feelings about that, what she was comfortable sharing and not sharing. And so it became a a collaboration between the two of us. And I, I have to say, I'm just so grateful to my mom My mom is a survivor who her whole life has supported other survivors, but she also just, I feel like our relationship has moved to a whole new plane of honesty and love and respect. And that has been tremendous. And then I will say in terms of its importance to other people, I've been incredibly 
honestly a little shocked, uh, but very moved by how many people it speaks to and how the more personal you are willing to get when you're sharing your story, that actually the more it resonates universally. That has been something I have learned by making this play. I did not think the play would appeal to like the thousands and thousands of people it did. I thought it would be a small little thing. And so I do think it's clearly important. It's clearly important to a lot of people that I speak out loud, the things I speak out loud about in the show. Clause three. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Your time begins now. Clause three is the most miraculous in our entire constitution. The due process clause. We stole it from the Magna Carta. It ensures that the government cannot lock you up, take your stuff, or kill you without a good reason. (laughs) It is also the heart of the 1973 Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, a case that is all about penumbras. With the help of Justice William O. Douglas's beautiful penumbra metaphor, Justice Harry Blackman used the Ninth Amendment to find the right to privacy in the 14th Amendment. And he argued that this gave a woman the right to decide what to do with her own body. Uh, Well, actually he argued that a doctor and his patient have a right to privacy so that he can decide what to do with her body. (laughs) This this was a very special moment for the Ninth and 14th Amendments. They they came together in a Wonder Twin Powers Activate kind of way (laughs) to protect a woman's right to choose. Of course, depending on your view, gentlemen, (laughs) you might consider this an unholy alliance. My view, which I do feel obligated to share even if it endangers my scholarship money, is I support a woman's right to choose. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I would like to be very clear that it is a choice that I would never make personally. Well, I think the reason it resonates and why it has moved thousands and thousands of people. And the reason I have you on, you know, the title itself implicates something, what the Constitution means to me. Yes. Because you think of the Constitution, it's an impersonal document. And you just mentioned, and I won't spoil the stories, you talk about this very personal pain your family experienced, domestic violence, in pretty strong terms and stark terms. And people might think to themselves, what does that have to do with the Constitution? That's just stuff that happens in my family. And repeatedly, time after time after time, you make the point that the Constitution has a connection to people's lives, even though that's not how it's taught in school. Right. What do those experiences, domestic violence and and relationships with other folks and choices you make about how you conduct yourself, your body, or otherwise, what does that have to do with the Constitution? Well, um, pretty quickly I started to understand that if I was going to talk about my own personal connection to the Constitution, I would have to talk about my own body and the Constitution. Um, Because the... Supreme Court decisions that affected me most extremely had to do with, of course, birth control, had to do with abortion. And then in looking at Supreme Court decisions over the years having to do with women's bodies and women identifying bodies and female bodies, I uh, I realized how much violence toward women was not only not addressed by our Constitution, <laughs> but also sort of enshrined in it in many ways, like the the lack of protection. I mean, the lack of protection for so many people in our Constitution, which has to do, of course, with the conception of what a Constitution ought to be that uh, that the founders had. Right. Well, it started um, out by excluding yeah. a whole bunch of people well, to yes, begin with. Yes, it started out by not only excluding a whole bunch of people, including women, but also relegating black people to less than human and also basically naming indigenous peoples as non-human. So... Yeah, it began as a very exclusive, I think, violent document. And in looking at the Constitution, trying to understand, like, how the women in my family might have been more protected by law, I just, I realized how deeply it had failed them. Just the fact that there is no Equal Rights Amendment, that there is actually no, the Constitution doesn't say, as Scalia noted, the Constitution doesn't say you have to discriminate on the basis of sex, but it also doesn't say anything about not discriminating on the basis of sex and how how difficult it has been for women to win their rights under a Constitution that was created by men for men without acknowledging them explicitly in any way. But I also stumbled upon many Supreme Court cases, of course, having to do with sexual violence and domestic violence and realized that in just case after case, 
the court basically confirmed that the Constitution, that that's not where we should look to. Yeah. There's a particular case you talk protections. about. Yeah. Uh, Castle Rock versus yes. Gonzalez, and you play a clip yes. from the argument before the Supreme Court, and you play yeah. a clip from the late Antonin Scalia. Why, why do you do that? Um, I do that for a few reasons. That case, Gonzalez versus Castle Rock, which was decided in 2005, is the closest to the circumstances of my own family. And I have become close with Jessica Lanahan since I started making the show. I have such deep admiration for her and her work. But she was in a relationship with a violent husband. She tried to get protection from him. She tried to get protection for her children from him. The police would not help her in any way. And her husband ended up killing their three daughters. She sued the Castle Rock Police Department um, for failing to protect her or even to attempt to protect her and her daughters. Under the Constitution. Under the, yes. She first just did this locally, right? She sued the police department because the state of Colorado had recently passed legislation that said police were required to show up if someone violated a protective order, and she had a protective order. So she sued the police department for failing to do their job. She won. Um, But then, of course, the city appealed. It made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically overturned her case, said that she was not entitled to protection from the police under the Constitution. Well, just as she could have complained to the police earlier, she could have gone to the court earlier when she saw that the police weren't doing anything. The the police told her to continue to wait. They strung her along, Your Honor. That's that's the, the crux of the problem here is that she relied upon the police to uh, enforce her restraining order. They told her to hold well, on. Well, that, that may be a tort, but it's not not necessarily a denial of process if the proper place to seek that process was from the court that issued the restraining order. I found the case confusing in so many ways, in part because they decided to overturn a decision that a state court had made, which I thought, Scalia, that was not his thing. But I, uh, but I also was, just as a, a human being and, and someone who has spent her life in the theater, when I listened to the case on OEA.org, I was just struck by how inhuman the law felt, how um, divorced from human feeling the discussions felt, the arguments over the word shall, does shall mean must, does it create a property interest? Wait, wait. I, I thought we were just talking here about state law as to whether shall means shall. Do you think that it's a matter of state law, whether whether if it does mean shall, it creates a property interest for purposes of the federal uh, constitution? Actually, when you listen to the case, the, the truth is the male justices' voices are relatively lacking in feeling as they speak. Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually gets quite emotional during the case, and she dissented. But I was just really struck by the chasm between the law and a real human Life, real human lives. I found it so upsetting to listen to, and it just made me think how easy it is for the law to get perverted into this thing where we forget that real human lives are at stake. Um, So that's why I play that tiny clip so you can hear what they decided this case was about. They decided it was about the word shall, how little emotion they have in talking about this woman's devastating loss, and how to me that's just a signal that the law— in, in that case, when the law isn't working, then we need to look at the law. So let's talk about the Constitution. Yeah, which sure. Is, which is part of our law. And you said a lot of things about the Constitution, both outside the show and in the show. And the Constitution comes under, you know, a decent amount of criticism. And then yes. you have the whole debate at the end that you've been referring to where you literally have sort of an improvised debate on the stage between you and one of two high school students, remarkable young women about whether we should keep the Constitution or trash the Constitution. So here's some things that you have said about the Constitution. In the speech you gave in high school, you called the Constitution a crucible. You've also said, and this is my favorite phrase, and you know what's coming, you have called the Constitution a living, warm-blooded, steamy document. Good summer <laughs> reading. I'm taking, I'm taking the Constitution to the beach. <laughs> is, is that the version of the Constitution you get in the paper bag? Exactly. Brown yeah, paper you, you ripped the cover off. A so living, warm-blooded, <laughs> steamy document. <laughs> to be uh, clear, that's my 15-year-old self saying okay. that. Okay. <laughs> well, that, Although I do think it's living and warm-blooded. You were steamy, certainly an outgoing nerd. <laughs> <I know. laughs> You're calling it a steamy document back then. 
I was 15 once and I never, I never thought of it as steamy, <laughs> actually. And then you, you say, you know, on the one hand, the Constitution is a magical thing. And on the other hand, it's an appalling document. How do you square all of those things? And how do you think about it now? Um, I don't think they can be squared. <laughs> I don't try to square them. In fact, I think the play itself is uh, trying to hold both of those things at once. I'm holding both my reverence for it and also my deep disappointment and in some cases disgust for it at once. And also my director, my great director, uh, Oliver Butler, and I talked from the very beginning about like the action of the plays is the action of questioning. Like I'm not there to give anybody any answers about the Constitution. Uh, like it really is an act of live investigation. I'm out there wrangling with my conflicting feelings about the document, my questions about the document. So the play has evolved as more constitutional scholars come to see it, and then I can ask them, hey, can you explain this to me? <laughs> so the play does change as I learn new things, and it really is, that's what it is. It's an act of questioning. It's an act of trying, I'm trying to understand myself, my own history, the country's history, the Constitution's history. So we think of it as a very active thing. Can I throw another phrase at you? Sure. Is the Constitution a patchwork quilt? No, I don't think <laughs> why, so. I think it's I alive. You, why am I asking you that question? <laughs> yeah, because my rival... Becky, I can't remember her last name. <laughs> so just let me, let me just update the audience. It's like, what the hell are these guys talking about? In the play, not to give, again, it's giving very little away. You have a nemesis competitor in these speech tournaments that you would enter into named Becky, who would call the Constitution a patchwork quilt, and this would make you crazy. Yes, it made me, well, yes. Mainly I was crazy because she beat me a lot. <laughs> and I yeah. hated that. I'm very competitive. But I think subconsciously I hated it because a, a quilt, while it has a good patchwork quilt can have history to it and stories embedded in it, it's also um, an inanimate object. And our Constitution is not an inanimate object in spite of what some people want to. Have you ever seen a, uh, yeah. a warm-blooded, steamy patchwork quilt? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, I haven't. Okay. And I really did love the metaphor of the crucible because it is, it's a living, transformative, you know, it's a container for a living transformation, which is how I see and view our Constitution. And I believe that makes me an originalist, as RBG said. I think, <laughs> I think the original idea behind the Constitution was that it could live and grow and change. Um, yeah, I don't think it should be read as something etched in stone. I think that's where we get into deep trouble. How do you define justice? That's such a big question. It is. <laughs> and I you like, got like 60 seconds. I got 60 seconds. <laughs> I mean, after doing this work yeah. and thinking about things, if a child were to ask you the question, you know, what is, yeah. what is fairness, what is justice, what's a simple way to describe it in your mind? I honestly, <laughs> and maybe this is what I'm trying to bridge in the show. So I grew up going to the Presbyterian church. I'm agnostic now. I don't go to church. But um, I do think, because one of the first things I learned was do unto others as you would have done unto you. I still carry that as a kind of bedrock for how to measure justice. I also, I also think that love is part of justice, that actually acknowledging the humanity of every single human being and Respecting that, the dignity of that, I think is justice. I think it's actually quite hard to do, as we can see. But I think that it's one way to measure whether something is just or not to say, like, would I want that to be done to me? Yeah. And also, am I fully acknowledging the specific, real, visceral humanness of that other person? We'll be back with Heidi in just a moment. Packing your toiletries somehow always involves a delicate game of stacking and space hacking. That's why Quip electric toothbrushes work just as well at home as they do on the go. The compact and wireless design tucks easily in the corner of your carry-on. A travel-ready cover acts as a stand, mounts to hotel mirrors, and protects your brush from sandy swimsuits and luggage slip-ups. And the three-month battery life will last all summer long. 
Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule for just $5, so you'll always have fresh bristles. They're making it easier than ever to keep up with your wake-up and wind-down routine when you're out of the office. It's compact, durable, and convenient. That's why I love Quip and why I'm taking it on my travels this summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com preet right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Preet. And this is when William O. Douglas first whipped out his big penumbra metaphor. This is when he said, for the first time, that one thing the Ninth Amendment surely guarantees is the right to privacy and that this allows a woman to put in an IUD as long as her husband says that it is okay. This was a very scary moment for William O. Douglas because nobody understands the Ninth Amendment. Nobody. Justice Scalia said he did not even remember studying it in law school. But they had to dig up this amendment that nobody understands because there was just no other way to deal with a female body because our bodies, our bodies had just, had just been left out of this document from the beginning. They were just like, like I, we, we don't know what to do with this kind of body. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. I know that you do not speak like that. <laughs> it's an amazing thing how people think the laws provide for something, even when common sense does not. Yes. My, my daughter didn't do the NFL, but in school once, she had to write a speech where you were persuading other people of something. And I said, you know, one issue that's interesting is equal pay for women. And my daughter looks at me and she says, that's a terrible topic. And I said, why would you say that? She says, well, one of the requirements of the assignment is there has to be an issue on which there's reasonable opposition to the point of view. And I don't understand how anyone could have any reasonable... I said, why don't you go and research it and see... It may be reasonable or not, but there has to be some basis of opposition. And she went up and did some Google searches that came back down. I was like, I think I'm going to be writing about this. And that ended up being her speech topic. (laughs) That's incredible. Because to an intelligent high school student, also an outgoing nerd, one might say, uh, (laughs) she's going to not like this characterization. I love Um, it. (laughs) Yeah. You you don't realize that there are a lot of things that the law does not provide for. So... There's this extraordinary ending to the play where you debate a high school student. Yes. And the debate, it's a little bit astonishing when you're sitting in the audience because you get very used to this idea the Constitution is perfect and everything is wonderful and the Founding Fathers were great. And it's a stark debate. So the question in the debate is what? We debate whether or not to abolish the United States Constitution and start over. With the Constitutional Convention. With the Constitutional Convention, yes. And, and you think it'd be kind of lopsided. But there are arguments that the audience finds plausible on both sides of that question. Yes. And the audience votes about 15% of the time to abolish. 15%? Are there particular nights of the week? No, but there are particular, depending on what's going on in the country, Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to affect it. Like when people feel like things are really, our audience, I guess, feels like things are not working. Um, Really in Manhattan? People think that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. It's shocking, right? Yeah. But there's a, a sense of like people feeling like I just, we need to start over. This is clearly not tenable. Uh, but then, of course, you know, there's the other argument, which is what protects us from tyranny if we, <laughs> if we open up a new constitutional convention. The audience really responds to, well, a few ideas. I think the idea, I like to think they respond to this. You know, we have as you know, the oldest living constitution in the world. There have been in the 20th and 21st centuries a lot of brand new constitutions made, modern, what we call positive rights constitutions that take a more active stance, at least on paper, at protecting individual human rights and protecting the environment and guaranteeing health care and guaranteeing education. I like these constitutions. I wish we had a constitution like that. The question of what happens in reality is that's a whole other debate. Are these constitutions effective? But I really think having human rights, positive human rights enshrined into our constitution, and maybe we could do that with amendments, I am 100% in favor of that. And I think people don't realize that we don't have that. I even talking about the ERA, because I've been working with the ERA coalition, you know, they've done these surveys where like, I don't know, 90% of people think we already have an equal rights amendment or think we already have protections, those kinds of protections based on gender, but we don't. And then also, I do say this in the show, 179 constitutions now have explicit gender protections written into them, into their documents, and we don't have that. But I think a lot of people think we do. 
Is there any line, either in the debate or throughout yeah. the play, that gets a reaction that you were surprised by? Um, uh, let's see, that I'm surprised by. I mean, I will say that uh, when our 14-year-old debater argues to abolish Rosdeli Ciprian, she um, uses a Harry Potter metaphor that is really, the audience goes wild for. <laughs> so she talks about the Constitution as a horcrux. Judges, our Constitution is like a horcrux in Harry Potter. <laughs> our founding father's soul that is still somehow still alive, ruling over the rest of us. Apparently a horcrux is like an evil wizard leaves a little part of his soul in the horcrux so that it will like, I don't know. Oh my goodness. Last through eternity or something. And she thinks we need to, to destroy the horcrux, to sort of destroy the original sins that were baked into the original constitution and start over. Uh, the audience loves that. A horcrux is an object in which a dark wizard has hidden a fragment of their soul for the purpose of gaining immortality. It's time to, uh-huh. it's time to destroy the horcrux so that we can move on from the sins of our past and finally write a document that is truly democratic and fully alive. We should be looking at the world with our own eyes, not going back 10 generations to figure out what Alexander Hamilton would have done. <laughs> we need fresh voices like mine to make laws that are current and relevant. Thank you, judges. I haven't, I'm going to confess that I haven't read Harry Potter, so it doesn't hit me as hard. Can I talk to my staff again? Can we get J.K. Rowling? Can we, can we make sure we get, get the kid? <laughs> and JK. All right. You give me all these great ideas for the podcast. I really That's appreciate amazing. it. Is there something about this time, you know, the last roughly two and a half years that has caused this work to resonate? You sort of referred to it, caused this work to resonate in a different way than you expected. I mean, you, did, you wrote this during the prior presidency. Yes, I did. What's changed in how you think the work is received given what's going on in the country? So I first performed it in 2015 when Obama was president and people really responded to it then as well. I think they responded to the um, personal stories, or at least the feedback they gave me was like, oh, that personal story really got to me, or I that happened in my family, or I share your feelings about that, or I had an abortion because I talk about my abortion in the show. Um, there was a lot of that, actually. The first time was that's when I realized how many people I knew had had abortions and that we never talked about it, even though my crowd of friends is largely you know, made up of feminists, people who we think were very open about these things, um, all pro-choice, never talked about our abortions to one another, which was very interesting to me. Then when I began performing it uh, during his administration, then I noticed that people were responding with more energy to the things I talk about, like birthright citizenship or, you know, the, the specific clauses of the 14th Amendment, like who's protected, who's not what it says about immigration, what it doesn't. Like, people were responding to the constitutional issues much more energetically than they did while I was performing under Obama. You might remember my town is, uh, is an abortion-free zone. Uh, you actually have to drive three hours west to Seattle, five hours east to Spokane to get an abortion. You're not still timing me, right? I'm going to keep going. Okay, so I... Um, <laughs> I decided to go eight hours south uh, using my rights from the uh, Privileges and Immunities Clause, my right to travel, uh, because uh, there's, there's a clinic there called the Feminist Women's Health Collective run by lesbians, which is clearly the best possible place on the planet to get an abortion. Uh, and that is what I wanted. I wanted an abortion. I knew that it was my right. Uh, I knew it was legal because I had been able to go to college. I knew that abortion had been legal in this country for most of its history. I knew that it had only become a crime in the late 19th century, around the same time the government started forcibly sterilizing uh, indigenous women and women of color. I knew it became a crime about the same time they decided that white women weren't having enough babies. Uh, I knew that white women in this country, especially rich white women, had always been able to get abortions. I knew that Gloria Steinem had had an abortion, and, and Billie Jean King, and Susan Sontag. I, I knew uh, that Penny from Dirty Dancing had had an abortion. <laughs> and I knew that when Jennifer Grey asked her father, Jerry Orbach, to save Penny's life, 
after her back alley abortion that she was asking a lot because it was the 1960s. Jerry Orbach could have been arrested for getting anywhere near an abortion. And I knew that this is how we were supposed to understand that Jerry Orbach was a good man and also how we knew that Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze's love was real. <laughs> you said something else I think is interesting and maybe is about these times. Yeah. You said, um, we're desperate for a communion and to have conversations where we're not screaming at each other. Is that a sign of the times? Because that's always been I, true. I mean, it's always, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, right? About when you go back in American history, you realize, like, the time is not, I mean, it's terrifying. And especially, well, on all fronts, what's happening is so devastating. We're in a moment right now when you and I are talking, obviously, when what's happening with the, I believe, entirely unconstitutional placing of immigrants into detention centers or whatever you want to call them is just an intense human rights crisis. But I will also say that I think going back and researching to make the play, I was like, oh, you know, when people say this is not America, I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) it is and has been America and it's what America was born out of. And I do feel desperately it's our duty to make a better America, but I do think we have to acknowledge that this isn't, this isn't new, any of this. I I guess I do, maybe because we interact so much on Twitter now where it's hard to have a real conversation, I do think and feel in the theater that there's hunger for actual conversation. That's why we have podcasts. That's, and podcasts. (laughs) We didn't used to have so many before. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's an inappropriate yeah, question. Yeah. Who's the sexiest founding father? Oh, that's a, a fantastic question. <laughs> Who is the sexiest founding father? I, hmm. Okay, I would say probably Ben Franklin just because oh, he was see, so going smart. Back, you, I mean, yeah, you were trying you know, to go get away like, from I feel ben. like he would be great to have like a conversation with. I feel like he had all those weird inventions in his house <laughs> and like that would be fun. Electricity. And, like, electricity. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I. His weird air baths where he walked around naked and that was his version of a shower. Um, so you, you would say he's the warm blooded, steamy. I would say he's the warm blooded, steamy. Yeah. But also, I was just reading, I, I don't know if he counts as a founding father, but I've been reading. Jill Lepore's amazing book, and I was reading about Luther Martin. I find this sexy, who actually just left the convention and was like, if we enshrine slavery into this document, I will have no part of this, and then went and lived the rest of his days in a cave. I find that kind of, especially at this moment, people who could actually stand up for things in a kind of extreme way, I find sexy. As I mentioned before we started the show, by happenstance and because of the calendar, and your schedule, it turns out that this episode will be dropping and hopefully millions of people will be listening to it on the 4th of July. And something that we've talked about on the show and I've talked about on social media and people in the country talk about is this idea of what does it mean to be patriotic? What does patriotism mean? What does patriotism mean to you? Patriotism to me is a willingness to love your country by looking at it clearly by openly criticizing it when it's not living up to what it ought to be. And patriotism is, in this country, like um, being willing to put yourself on the line to make to make things better in the country, to vote, to protest, to make your voice heard, to run for office. But definitely high, high on that list is the willingness to look at things honestly, not look away, and to criticize your country when it's not living up to, when it's not being humane, when it's not being just. Like you might with your child. Exactly. Yes. Heidi Shrek, this has been such a treat and a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Good luck with your shows. Thank you. And I'll see you sometime soon. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hey, folks, as I mentioned, For this special episode on July 4th, I was curious to hear what all of you think about patriotism and being patriotic. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How you go about honoring your country? And I'm pleased to say we got a lot of responses. We can't play all of them, and we can't play some of them in their entirety, but here's a sampling of what the listeners of Stay Tuned think about that question. Hi, 
Preet. This is Linda from Minnesota. Bryce Bookman calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Jennifer in Batesville, Arkansas. Diane from Virginia. John, I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Cynthia Swanson from Gainesville, Florida. Hey, Preet, this is Les in Brooklyn. Hi, my name is Sigal, and I'm calling from Philadelphia. Preet. This is James calling from the Carolina. Patriotism means standing for values like the rule of law and inclusiveness, especially when it's hard and takes courage. Patriotism for me means raising American children and learning from them about the history and the constitution of this country. Hi, Preet. This is Brian Moore calling from Sammamish, Washington. Another perfect topic for a haiku. Our anthem is raised. I place my hand on my heart despite all our flaws. Patriotism to me means that you have the freedom of being yourself and showing people who you are without being judged. Caring enough about your country to criticize it and then actively working to make it better. Patriotism means believing that this country can do better. Patriotism for me is proud yet inclusive of the people and by the people to make life better for the people no matter how sad we are by the news and how hard it is and good god it's been hard patriotism is my country right or wrong if right to be kept right if wrong to be set right patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it mark twain patriotism from the ever succinct oscar wilde patriotism is the virtue of the vicious so always be weary of those who would lionize it as a character trait. Patriotism is not the chest pounding or the flag waving. Doesn't mean standing for the national anthem. I don't require flags and songs and parades to be patriotic. Patriotism is yet another narrow-minded outlook or philosophy that leads to the exploitation and division of humanity. And when that country fails to live up to its ideals, to advocate for those ideals so that we can form a more perfect perfect union. union. Love of country, yes, but also commitment to address its imperfections. But it's not a blind love. It includes a willingness to change your country when it's not being its best. Putting the needs of others above yourself. Commitment to freedom for all people, which requires listening, cooperating, voting, advocating, and adhering to an ethical boundary against selling out to the highest bidder. Loving your country, loving your democracy. Patriotism is engagement and voting and volunteering and speaking up for our rights. Speaking truth to power. Loving my country, warts and all. Akin to the love of a parent for their child. Loving it despite their flaws and accepting responsibility for helping them form their character and future. Similar to the unconditional love a parent feels for their child. Especially for those with little to no voice. Patriotism to me means that I can be free to protest the actions of my government. Standing for values like the rule of law and inclusiveness, especially when it's hard and takes courage. Equality, fairness, justice. My idea of patriotism is riding the sea train, looking to my left and to my right, and realizing that we are all on the same train. All those feelings of pride, joy, and love. That's what patriotism is to me. Hey folks, I have to say how moved I am listening to all of your responses to the question, what does patriotism mean to me? It's really overwhelming. And I've just listened to those responses while I'm on holiday with my family in the United Kingdom. I'm actually recording this in my London hotel room, so I apologize if the sound quality is not what you're used to. So what does patriotism mean to me? Well, part of it will be rooting for the American women's soccer team over the English women's soccer team in a big match, highly anticipated tonight. Apologies to my gracious UK hosts. But more seriously, it's hard to improve upon some of the things that you all said about the rule of law, the ability to criticize your country and about how you love your country in some ways like you love your own children. I agree with those people who said that patriotism is not about learning a song or worshiping a symbol, though I often still get a lump in my throat during the national anthem. To me, patriotism means loving and internalizing the ideals of America. It means taking the time to learn what those ideals and principles are, what freedom means, what equal justice means. It also means wanting to be true to those ideals. It means wanting to make America better when it falters, wanting to give back to your country. It means loving your country enough that you want to serve it. It means having hope and faith that your country will get better and more just over time. So to me, Patriotism really means service to the country and its ideals and its people. As I mentioned, I'm abroad on vacation, and I find 
when I travel out of the States. I can't fully explain it, but I always miss America when I'm not there. And no matter how much fun I'm having on vacation, I always love America just a little bit more when I return. I won't be in the States this July 4th. I can't remember the last time I wasn't in the States for the 4th of July. So no barbecue for me, but I'll be thinking about your comments. I'll be thinking about all the things you said and why we should love the country. And so to all of you, have a healthy, happy, and patriotic Independence Day. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Heidi Schreck. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. There are some things in life to take seriously, like feeling safe in your home. But most companies don't make it easy. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Simply Safe protects your whole home, every window, room, and door, with 24/7 monitoring for a fraction of the cost. Visit simplysafe.com/preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now to simplysafe.com/preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. Simply